COVID-19 in Southeast Asia. Because of the monopolisation of vaccines by wealthy countries last year, to date, most developing countries have found it hard to get the supply they need. The geopolitics of Antarctica. You know, we're so busy fighting with each other that we're not having the conversations to bolster our own strategy. So it's a win for our adversaries in Antarctica. The future of Darwin Port. Uh, but there's not a lot of stickiness in terms of our policy there and not a lot of big thinking. You know, we, we sort of revisit it every so often. But it seems everyone from the Japanese, the whole lot, they all say, you know, this is really important. We want to be here. This is Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast with me, Olivia Nelson. Recently, COVID-19 cases in Southeast Asia have hit new highs, making it the global epicentre of the coronavirus. As countries across the region try to curb the spread of the Delta variant, Richard Maud and Dr Huang Le Tu detail how Australia can support its neighbours and the region's potential path to recovery. The recent reports from across Southeast Asia are very grim. The number of cases and worse, the death toll are surging exponentially. And while the vaccine rates are still very low, with exception of Singapore, of course, um, the Indo- cases in Indonesia exceeded the ones reported in India and Malaysia's cases by uh, per capita is actually even higher than one noted in Indonesia. The real scope of pandemic in Myanmar is unknown due to the crisis, but it is understood that the large numbers of people are suffering alone and without adequate access to health care. Even those that had initially managed uh, to flatten the curve, mainly Thailand, Vietnam and other mainland Southeast Asia, are struggling this time. Singapore that had come up with the strategy of living with the virus now that it has around 70% of population vaccinated also is bringing back the social restriction due to the new cases. The Delta variant is hitting the region hard and every day the future looks very grim. Richard, you keep a close eye on the evolving situation in the region as you lead an excellent project, Southeast Asia and the COVID-19, where uh, you examine different aspects of the pandemic on the region. This is the situation evolving now is really bad, not only for Southeast Asian standard, but actually it is one of the worst outbreaks in the world. What went wrong? Why are we here today? Thanks very much, Huang. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I think there are three main reasons. You mentioned one of them in your introduction, and that's Delta. So Southeast Asia, of course, is very much far from alone in struggling with this highly contagious variant. So is Europe, even with high vaccination rates. So is North America. And of course, Australia very much is so. And most regional countries are using last year's playbook, a kind of patchwork of lockdown measures of varying stringency that are really struggling to to get uh, the Delta variant uh, surges under control. A second reason, I think there's a strong sense of, of, of populations weary with the struggle. That's very understandable. Again, something we see in advanced economies in the West. So maintaining discipline is harder. And of course, in Southeast Asia, the poorest often just can't afford to stay at home. And then the third big reason is that with the exception of Singapore and perhaps Cambodia, vaccination rates across the region are still very low. And there are a number of reasons for this. Um, One is that because of the monopolisation of vaccines by wealthy countries last year, to date, most developing countries have found it hard to get the supply they need. 
I think it's probably true that many Southeast Asian governments were a bit slow off the mark in trying to procure vaccines. There's a bit of a sense that they were lulled by the successes um, of last year. And then there are some other factors. Vaccine hesitancy is a problem. There's an enormous amount of misinformation about the vaccines uh, in Southeast Asia. Southeast Asia loves a good rumour, uh, and this stuff's rife on social media and uh, is, a, is a big problem. Um, look, all Southeast Asian governments are trying to fix that now. They're really trying to ramp up their vaccination programs, and the supply story is going to change. It's already changing. Uh, it will get better. There will be more vaccines available. And some countries in Southeast Asia are going to make their own vaccines. They're going to produce vaccines developed by others in Southeast Asia. But this is all a little way off. 2022 is going to look quite different, I think, to 2021, but that's that's still some time away. That's right. You, a very important point you point out that, um, you know, some of the countries had used the old playbook and the Delta variant is almost as a new pandemic, is, has different pattern of spread and is much more contagious. And governments in the region, as well as around the world, need to adapt their strategies to uh, the evolving and mutating virus. The vaccine politics is very interesting, and, and there is a lot of problematic issues there, including um, accessibility and equitable um, access to the vaccines. But I wonder um, what a potential way forward uh, do you think for the region? Is it rolling out a vast number of vaccines? How do we deal with the potential new mutation perhaps? And as uh, this pandemic looks like a long game that we are in. Yeah, that's a lovely way to put it. It is a long game. I think that realisation is setting in all around the world. Look, vaccinations are critical. They really are the key. And that's why Southeast Asian countries are working so hard now to ramp up their programs. But I think we know enough now to know that vaccinations on their own are not going to be enough. I think Singapore is an interesting example. You mentioned um, Singapore in your opening remarks, and they're uh, the most advanced on defining what living with COVID looks like. The government has a roadmap, which has been, well, road testing, if you like, uh, with the Singapore public in uh, recent weeks, and it's got a number of main elements. So the first one is high rates of vaccination, and they're talking at least two-thirds of their population fully vaccinated, and some recent commentary in the light of the Delta outbreak perhaps suggests perhaps as high as 80% of their population are fully vaccinated before they move to this living with COVID option. Uh, second, um, rapid testing and rapid testing done at scale so that um, it allows you to open your borders, it allows you to hold big events with a higher degree of confidence. The third thing is recovery at home for most people to ease pressure on hospitals. And the implication here is that the fully vaccinated won't get seriously ill. And then lastly, ongoing social responsibility, that is, you know, taking care of your personal hygiene and just being sensible. And look, you know, I, I can see a, a small advanced uh, city-state like Singapore achieving this eventually, but of course, some Southeast Asian countries are going to achieve all of that list, certainly sometime soon. And I think some might go to the living with COVID option with lower percentages of their populations fully vaccinated than a place like Singapore. 
And so the reality is I think uh, many Southeast Asian governments and countries are going to live with much higher ongoing rates of infections and fatalities uh, than a country like Australia will. So living with COVID, I think, is going to mean a lot of people with COVID in Southeast Asia. So it'll be a different and quite possibly still confronting new normal. I guess uh, with optimistic prognostic, um, perhaps mid or end of 2022 for some countries to reach that uh, um, desired numbers that you've mentioned, 70 to 80 percent of vaccinated, but I think it's still quite an optimistic prognostic. The question and the problem becomes when um, the region is unevenly vaccinated. So even countries that have the immunity will might have to be prepared uh, to uh, some rapid lockdowns when the cases surge again. Um, but let's think. Let's look a little bit um, about uh, the economy because Southeast Asia is or has been until the, the pandemic characterized by rapid and fast economic growth and. Uh, the prognostic by IMF was uh, relatively um, uh, optimistic at, until um, as recent as June, where most um, of the countries in the region were expected to have a more or less V-shaped recovery, maybe with the exception of Myanmar and Brunei. But uh, 2020 was bad and 2021 was supposed to bring us back to the growth rate uh, equivalent to the pre-pandemic 2019. So, and Vietnam and Singapore were leading the pack as of June, and the numbers were pretty good, 5% to 6%. But July's picture doesn't make it really realistic, doesn't it? Uh, what is your assessment, Richard, on the economic recovery outlook? I mean, this is the region that really relies on tourism, services, manufacturing, and all those sectors are being really hard hit by the pandemic. Yes, they are being hard hit. Look, I think. At the moment, you would say that the these new surges are slowing the recovery, but at this stage, probably not going to derail the recovery entirely. Uh, I mean, the new wave is causes terrible timing for these countries because they were just hauling themselves out of last year's recession. Most of Southeast Asia went into recession last year. There were a few honourable exceptions, including Vietnam, for example. And... The big reason for the recovery uh, this year is very strong external demand for the things that Southeast Asia produces. So if you think about manufactured exports, it's things like medical supplies and all the things that people want and are using when they're locked down or working from home, smartphones, computers, home entertainment devices, component parts like semiconductors. And also prices for Southeast Asian commodities like copper and palm oil have been quite strong. And so Indonesia has benefited from that. And you know th this has come really from a couple of uh, key sources. One, the United States, because its economy has recovered quickly. There's a lot of fiscal stimulus in America, and this is driving this external demand. And secondly, from China and some of the other big North Asian markets like Japan and the Republic of Korea. So the one thing going for the region is that that external demand looks like it's going to stay strong. But even so, uh, because of the lockdowns, the IMF, uh, the Asian Development Bank, they are revising their growth forecasts for the region downwards. And of course, the longer the lockdowns go, uh, the more the recovery, uh, the more the sort of 
forecast growth, which is, you know, you usually estimated around four to four and a half percent this year, the more that will drop. Um, there are a couple of other, I think, caveats here. One is that performance, as you said, is uneven across the region. So some countries are still doing quite well. But if you look at Myanmar, the World Bank has just said they expect the economy to contract by, you know, an incredible eight, just a staggering 18% this year. If you're an economy that's dependent on tourism like Thailand, you're still doing it really tough. And the longer and harder the recovery, the, the, the deeper the scarring is going to be. I'm talking about things here like overcoming unemployment, the loss of human capital, bringing people back up out of poverty who've fallen into poverty, uh, the inequality and so on. So, you know, it really is going to be quite a long, hard recovery for the region. Is there anything Australia can do to help our neighbours, particularly Indonesia and, and Myanmar? Not least we have, our, have to have our own vaccination story straight, but I wonder, do you see Australia's role in uh, assisting the neighbours beyond, of course, the donation and answers assisted with vaccines themselves? Yes, absolutely. And look, I think there are two things here. One is responding to the immediate and urgent needs. And of course, Australia is doing that. We should we should recognise that. Um, Australia last year started directing significant amounts of aid uh, towards uh, the pandemic, towards supporting the procurement of vaccines, the delivery, uh, the logistics of delivering uh, vaccines, uh, medical equipment and so on. Uh, and now, just recently, because we're producing AstraZeneca here, uh, we, we are now able to provide uh, AstraZeneca into the region and we've pledged significant donations, for example, to Indonesia and Vietnam. So re we really can't do enough of that. The more we can do, the better, because the needs right now are very large. But then I think there's definitely really a very strong partnership role here for us to work with the region to think about what are the things that we can do to get them back on a path of sustainable recovery to overcome some of that scarring that I talked about. And that's going to involve long-term partnerships, the development of new types of aid programs that are geared to the recovery um, over quite some period of time. Those are excellent uh, recommendations and I think it, it reminds us that nobody's safe until everybody's safe in the region and in the world. So this is uh, an evolving situation and we'll keep a close eye watching it. Uh, don't forget to check the website for our Richard's project, uh, COVID in Southeast Asia. Thank you for joining us with Podcast Richard. Always a great pleasure to talk to you. Thanks, Ron. Really enjoyed it. This year marks the 60th anniversary of the Antarctic Treaty which governs international use of the southern continent. Research intern Matthew Page speaks to Polar Geopolitics expert Dr Elizabeth Buchanan. They discuss the geopolitics of the region, the usefulness of the treaty system 60 years on, and what Australia should be focusing on in its Antarctic policy. Hi Dr Buchanan, thank you for joining us today. Um, we're here to talk about Antarctica, so I think a great place to start is the fact that this year marks the 60th anniversary of the Antarctic Treaty, which would go on to form the Antarctic Treaty system. Um, given that Australia was one of the original 12 parties of the treaty and that the Antarctic Treaty consultative meeting was held right here in Canberra, 
How important of a foreign policy moment do you see this for Australia? And in your view, have we shown the same leadership in Antarctica since? Yeah, great question. I think if you take a stock of the last, you know, two or three weeks of celebratory material of the Australian kind of 60 years as part of the treaty, I think it really highlights what we take away from our engagement in Antarctica. And that's a real kind of historical legacy. Names of Mawson, I think, are the only things that we take away um, of our Antarctic interest there, which is really sad. And I don't think it is a topic that is thought about in strategic terms. So historical identity, I think, is the main name of the game here for Australia. I think it's really important to point out that it's not a static treaty. And I think that's a mis- sort of misassumption that a lot of people have and sadly most Australian nationals do. Um, it doesn't you know, lock away 42% of the continent, right? It's much like Santa Claus. No one else really agrees with those imaginary lines. Um, not even our closest ally, the US, recognises them. So it's kind of nice, I guess, in principle to think about our Antarctic stake and our historical legacy down south. But in practice, and that's something my work kind of focuses on, you know, what does it really mean, asking those kinds of questions. So it's really interesting that you brought up that it's not a static treaty and that these these are subject to change and reinterpretation. And of course, Australia's 42% claim, like you mentioned, isn't recognised by the other members of the Antarctic Treaty system. So given that, do you see as the system as needing to change or being under threat by sort of changing geopolitical circumstances? Uh, the world's a very different place than it was um, 60 years ago when the treaty was signed. Namely, I think of two main challenges. First, the increasing assertiveness of, re- of revisionist powers, um, looking to undermine international norms like the treaty system, but also the existential of threat of climate change and the kind of impact that will have on the continent, but also powers and their resources and their interests in the Antarctic region. Yeah, absolutely. So I think the first takeaway is it's such a relaxed kind of grouping of articles, of, of legal articles. After all, I mean, I will preface, I am not the legal eagle here, but nothing is defined in the Antarctic Treaty. So we don't know what we are conceptualising as wartime, as peacetime, as acts of militarisation. Um, so, and they're, they're key issues when you think about, you know, as you said, it's not a static treaty. So the world around has changed, yes, but... The actors have also changed. We have different players. We have different technologies that are facilitating different ways, I guess, to test and probe the treaty for weakness uh, and points of pressure. And we've got states that are, I guess, you know, well, slowly eroding, I think is the kind of the best terminology for this, but they're slowly eroding the principles of the treaty. But back the other way, the principles of the treaty facilitate that process to occur. And these aren't, you know, other other sort of geopolitical issues you have in the world. You've got, you know, external actors and stakeholders that aren't part of a problem, part of an area, part of a, you know, South China Sea problem, for example. But in the Antarctic, you've got the very stakeholders and the signatories of the treaty system that are partaking in these kind of activities. And obviously, we talk about um, revisionist Russia, rising China, whatever kind of label you want to put on them. But the activity that they are undertaking in Antarctica is, you know, as a realist scholar, it's to further their own national interest, as is Australian activity down there as well. Like, we can't make no two ways about it. We do exactly the same sorts of things, maybe to a different kind of scale. 
Um, and that comes down to resources, right? But I think one of the key issues we have in terms of trying to track the implications of external geopolitical pressures on the treaty system and on the question of Antarctica is all of the camps that are meant to deal with the problem are so kind of siloed and at war with each other. And I think, you know, you were at the event recently with the US Embassy in which this is something I really spoke about, you know. We have an issue and it is kind of, I'd say it's rather unique to Australia in which, you know, legal experts on Antarctic issues, the science science and environmentalists um, and then the sort of humanities, strategic studies folks like me, we can get so tribal in our beliefs about what the system, the Antarctic system facilitates, what it doesn't facilitate, the future of it, whether it's strong, weak, you know, problems ahead. But we aren't having these conversations in a constructive manner, you know, together in a room. There's so much infighting. But it it is just such a disservice to, you know, the national interest for what Australian Antarctic strategy could be. Um, And I will point out that stakeholders like China, potentially Russia, they rely on that kind of division that we have within our community of Antarctic scholarship. You know, we're so busy fighting with each other that we're not having the conversations to bolster our own strategy. So it's it's a win. It's a win for our um, adversaries in Antarctica. I might circle back to the um, the issue of climate change particularly and and maybe how you see that changing activities in the region. Um, I see a lot of speculation uh, online and a lot of things written about uh, you know, changing ice cover, uncovering additional water, fisheries and mineral resources, but also about the existing Antarctic infrastructure at science bases, Australian bases, but also for those of other countries. Do you see a situation in which climate change will significantly impact Antarctica? And how do you think Australia should be preparing to respond to that or the world be preparing to respond to that? Yeah, well, super interesting question. Obviously, Australia's own I guess, handling of the climate change question leaves a lot to be desired. Um, So let alone how we would navigate the climate change issue in Antarctica. But I think climate change, first and foremostly as a strategic studies person, for me, I look to how it is used to mask um, an uptick in activity in Antarctica. So we know that the treaty facilitates scientific research. Even, you know, military personnel and assets are permissible to be deployed to Antarctica if they are in support of scientific activity. So we're seeing a real uptick in activity and expeditions and projects with all of the treaty members that are kind of branded for climate change research. You know, we've got drones that are deployed throughout the year to monitor ice shelf carving. Great. We can put that aside and say, you know, that's great for all mankind and we're keeping, we're on the pulse of what's going on um, in terms of climate change. But I think, again, as a strategic studies kind of person, if we flip that around, we do need to ask the kind of questions, well, what military security application do these technologies have as well? And I'll point to, you know, the Chinese um, deployment of various, you know, scientific expeditions. They've really, you know, increased the pace, as they have in the Arctic, of their activity in Antarctica. But there is a Chinese law that mandates that any scientific, so any civil Um, technology has to have government, state, defence, backdoor access has to have utility for the Chinese government. So the lines between what is permissible scientific research and what is seen as, you know, a slow roll towards militarisation or more, I guess, ominous applications, that's not something that's clearly defined by the treaty. Um, And that's part of the problem. 
Yeah. So I think you know what you're describing comes under the umbrella of sort of dual use technologies. And with that comes the question, you know, what kind of red lines should we be putting in the in the Antarctic region? If if we're seeing these these technologies implemented for both scientific and uh, military use, then where should we draw the line and where should we really be putting our foot down and, and, and making public statements about what activities should or shouldn't occur? Yeah, I think this points to why the question of Antarctica, I guess more that we should frame it more as a problem of Antarctica for Australia, policymakers at least, is there's so much double standard in the entire kind of treaty system. So we point to issues with Chinese application of their Beidou military satellite, you know, deployed in Antarctica, but the West was doing it first with GPS. So who are we to speak? Um, and also if we start laying down red lines, well, first of all, the treaty has no enforcement mechanisms. It's part of the problem. If we start laying down red lines, number one, anything that we sort of tabled would have to be accepted by consensus and that's just the nature of the treaty system. And I'll point out that we've been able to modify and amend the Antarctic Treaty since 1991, but there has been no review conference called. So I think that points to the reality of it's more, it's, it's like having your cake and eating it too, right? We want to keep all of our options open in terms of what we can do on a continent that's rich with resources is a strategic basing into all key major oceans um, and, you know, the clearest view to space. So that matters for, I guess, the next commons that we'll go, quote, unquote, to war over. So, yeah, the double standards, I think, make it really difficult for us to start talking about red lines because we don't want to put, you know, tie, tie another hand behind our back in terms of right. our potential there. I'd love to get your thoughts on the Davis Aerodrome Project. Um, yeah, an ASPE report was, was recently released a few months ago about it. What do you see as sort of the pros and cons of Australia building a year-round all-weather runway in Antarctica? And this can be environmental impacts or strategic. And then, by the way, congratulations on um, being named the 2021-2022 Australian Parliament Research Fellow. Uh, in that role, what are some of the key messages about Antarctica that you're going to be looking to try share with the Australian government or bring, bring to uh, Parliament's attention? Awesome. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's really exciting to be able to have the time to delve into parliamentary records um, and years and years of I'm doing 20 years worth of Hansard records, which is quite confronting um, for somebody who kind of saw the gap in our geopolitical assessment of Antarctica to be confronted with the realities kind of of paper that, yeah, we really haven't as a country, as a parliament, delved into the security issues in Antarctica in the ways that you'd think claimant state of 42% of a continent would. Um, so that involves, you know, various interviews with senators, with all of the political parties to kind of get a get, I guess, a, a temperature as to where we're leaning with the problem of Antarctica because, you know, as it's kind of it's well known that Antarctica is kind of one of the only bipartisan issues in which we agree with, you know, uphold the treaty system, increase Australian influence is kind of the, the soundbite. I would argue that's not enough anymore um, because back to this kind of self-licking ice cream argument, you know, upholding the treaty system in itself makes the activity that we want to call out elsewhere permissible just to the way that the treaty has been written and the lack of enforcement mechanisms. So, yeah, really exciting project to be a part of and watch this space for the publications that will come out of that. On Davis Aerodrome Project, people are finally starting to talk about it and I will point out that it was kind of scoped in the 1970s by Australian um, military surveyors. So we know it's, you know, 
the most straightforward place to build the infrastructure. Mm-hmm. It's infrastructure we need. Um, I don't think that anyone's really competing in terms of whether or not we need it. It just comes down to the fact that we have done, and we, I mean Australia, um, we've done ourselves a disservice by making the lead kind of identity factor of our Antarctic stake the concept of environmental conservatorship. I mean, how do you how do you balance that, you know, decades of that kind of environmental protection PR line with blasting an entire area um, of Antarctica to build a concrete runway? Yes, it will be in pavers. Yes, it's not infrastructure that will be there into, you know, perpetuity. It can be dismantled and removed, which it will need to be if, you know, we need to pack up and leave. But it's not strategic infrastructure that we can own either. So if it's safe to use it, it will be made available to our partners. Um, I think the problem in terms of, I guess, negatives with the project is the optics. It's the sales pitch, right? We can await in the same region of East Antarctica, this is where the aerodrome will be, we can await what we know is coming in that region and that's a runway from China nearby and a little bit further down um, sort of southeast of East Antarctica um, and this was actually only recently publicly made um, available last couple of weeks in the new Russian Antarctic development strategy um, is plans to build for the moment it's a helicopter aerodrome in the AAT, Australian Antarctic Territory. So we know that other states have plans to build their own aviation infrastructure. So the idea that this will lead to a industrialization of Antarctica race is null and void. I think it would have been better tabled, the project, as an opportunity for states in the East Antarctic kind of wing um, to come together and collaborate on whether cost sharing to build the damn thing, um, operational use. And that, I guess, bolsters the ATS as well because it underscores the need for international collaboration and cooperation. But I don't think we jumped on that opportunity early enough. And so now, you know, I think it will be built. The only question now remains is time. So we've got, we've got a build date by 2040, which to me is, I mean, that's mind-boggling um, that it could take that long. But I think the realistic, sort of just to wrap up, the realistic geopolitical pressures will mean that the other aviation infrastructure that has been flagged from other states will be online by then and we will simply be doing what Australia does elsewhere in the world and that's, you know, playing catch-up. So I guess watch, watch this space. Right, yeah, it'll be very interesting to see how it all develops. Uh, thank you for speaking with us today. Thank you. The Port of Darwin, currently under a 99 new lease to Chinese company Landbridge, is of strategic importance to Australia and our allies. Michael Shoebridge speaks to Dr John Coyne about a new ASPE report on the port and four options for the future development of Darwin Port and Harbour. Well, John, it's great to be with you to talk about the, the big report that you and Tegan uh, Westendorf have done on Darwin Port and the options that the Australian federal government and territory government have to really 
put Darwin and its port on a strategic direction. Um, one of the big things that struck me about your report was the way you described the different interests and actors there. You know, the, the economic actors, uh, the infrastructure builders, uh, the direction of Japanese companies uh, that fits with their government policy around energy security, and then our big American ally, uh, not just with its uh, existing force posture initiatives, but also with things like a new uh, fuel storage facility and the larger strategic environment. What was it that made you want to lay out the port and, and options for its future now? Look, there are a couple of different things, Michael. And, you know, first and foremost is that the public discourse over there and the media that was covering this, so all the, you know, a lot of it was really boiled down to a decision, you know, what should we do about Landbridge and our lease to um, Landbridge for the Darwin Port and how should have the decision in 2015 gone? Um, and, and I wanted to extend something beyond that. The other part was is that when I looked at the port and running a Northern Australian Strategic Policy Centre, I'd have the opportunity to visit Darwin Port on a number of occasions and that there's all these uh, amazing things happening there, but there was no sense of strategic whole and there were a lot of people making um, decisions quite separately from each other. So, you know, for example, part of the agreement, um, Landbridge Group's going to invest $200 million in the port uh, sometime over in infrastructure, sometime over the next 20 years. Uh, Defence is going to be looking to do some things beyond Coonawarra and for overflow, uh, but can't tell you quite yet where they're going to do that. So uh, what I wanted to do was sort of paint this picture that there's a lot of work going on there. And the other part was there's no debate over the importance or the strategic importance for, of economically, geopolitically, for national security of Darwin. Um, you know, there hasn't been, certainly in Australian context, not since Federation, we all agree this is really important. Um, but there's not a lot of stickiness in terms of our policy there and not a lot of big thinking. You know, we, we, we sort of revisit it every so often. Mm. But it seems everyone from the Japanese, the whole lot, they all say, you know, this is really important. We want to be here. Although I think one of the things that came out really strongly in the report to me was your observation that lots of organisations and people have plans for Darwin Port but there's no overall strategic direction that's pulling these together. And I, I think you make the observation just from the strategic environment perspective that this is a unique piece of geography in Australia's north and it's got the interests of our American allies, our Japanese strategic partner, probably more than it's got our own interests and intent around planning. And that's something I think there's a clear message you see is needing to change. Look, point. most definitely, Michael, and I think this is the issue. I think locally, you know, the Northern Territory governments see the, the strategic benefit economically for them. Um, and they're trying to leverage, from a domestic point of view, that national security picture. I guess one of the magic statements uh, from my perspective as one of the co-authors of this is this whole issue of what this report is about is about Okay, how do we get and leverage the maximum um, strategic and economic value from our northernmost deep water port? Now, when I say Australia, so it's important um, that the US have interests in it. It's important that the Japanese have interests in our in our harbour um, in Darwin, and especially for their economic security and energy security. But ultimately, right up front, we want to make sure that we are getting the maximum benefit out of that. And as it stands, what we saw through the report is that we're not. 
and that what we really need to do is, and it's not just about the Commonwealth taking over or anything as simple as that. It's about we need a real strategy here that engages with all of the people involved, all of the entities involved, and we need a really hard look whether or not the costs and impacts of having a, a Chinese company owning owning the essentially owning a lease for 99 years, how that will impact on us as a nation getting the maximum benefit. Yeah, and that's interesting because, you know, there's a lot of discussion about trying to second-guess the 2015 decision, but I think your report doesn't get in, into that so much. It more looks at, well, here we are in 2021, what makes sense from here? And it's certainly a matter of public disclosure from Landbridge that, they're losing money every year, you know, $40 million or, or more dollars every year. You know, as far as a, an operator with a long-term future there, you've got to wonder about the commerciality of that, but also that strategic shift that's that's been so noticeable uh, with the rise of Chinese power and a Chinese state that's really willing to direct its companies to achieve its ends. That, that to me, is a defining difference between 2015 and now, and we are blind not to take account of that. And look, both Tegan and I didn't want to sort of sit there and point figures. There'll be plenty of, plenty of people to in the Canberra environment willing to look over this for over the next decade and point fingers. I think then there's room for that, and um, Canberra will play out that as it does. Uh, but you are right, Michael. You know, for me, you know, I look at the defence strategic update. So I look and track part of this through. I look at the 2016 defence white paper that that hung on so tightly to um, Paul Dibb's perspective. You know, more than 10 years' notice of a future conflict. And then I look at the defence strategic update last year that says under 10 years, under 10 years. And so to me, that points out that we really are in a very different space for defence. And secondly, I look over the last 12 to 18 months and the behaviour of the Chinese Communist Party in terms of their use of economic coercion. And then I look at, um, you know, in one area, and I, I, you know, I try not to read quotes and things like that, but I'd like to read a quote from, the, from our report, but also from, the, um, from a 2019 um, Landbridge Group corporate promotional video. In the future, Landbridge will continue to actively respond to the call of the state, take the initiative to undertake major national strategic mechanisms, always adhere to the national interest. Um, and I think if you add all of that change in the strategic context, Just and that's to sort be of clear, quote, that that isn't about the Australian national interest. I take it. No, that is a, from a Chinese company. That is the message from their um, Hong Kong-based headquarters from Landbridge. Mm. Um, and I think you know, whilst that video has since been taken down, um, you know, it's it's part of a broader thing. It reiterates the concerns that people have shown. Well, and the bigger issue is the reach of the Chinese government into its corporate world too. So those things work in combination. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting the way uh, you put that the Landridge lease in that wider context of what's the future for the port and how do these different interests combine. You know, to me, the image probably of, of the harbour is Landbridge is that piece of sand in the oyster and uh, there are ways of dealing with it. You've got working around that fact uh, and, and letting the lease go to term, uh, a buyout, an ending of the lease by the Commonwealth, but it's all in that larger strategic picture of what's the opportunity cost of not make, making maximum strategic advantage of the, of the port. And, and to me, a larger naval facility there then can in any way be accommodated around 
anything outside the land rich holdings like the little patrol boat base at Coonawarra, uh, that's a bigger naval facility is really core to empowering things like quad naval cooperation, uh, let alone just allied cooperation with, with the US. Look, I agree totally, and I think you know. Look, while I don't want to throw cliches into the to the mix here, you know, Corey Met, uh, Rory Metcalf's recent book from last year on uh, the Indo Pacific has a wonderful map in that where essentially it's the map of the Indo Pacific turned on its side, and what it shows you is Darwin sitting the bottom centre of that. Um, and I often like to describe the port of Darwin and the city of Darwin as the city between two great oceans. Um, so you know, it has it has a a spectacular amount of promise in terms of cooperation, logistics, a training environment. Now, the big challenge here, though, is is that you know the, while it may not be on the public record, defence primes will be really looking and asking themselves the question about what are they willing to do in terms of, especially some of our fifth generation capability in Darwin. Um, we'll never know for sure, but um, you know the UK's latest aircraft carrier is doing its inaugural tour of the world, but it's not visiting um, Darwin. And I would suggest, had it visited Darwin, that would have been a strategic own goal. Now the other well, thing, well, we is should have facilities that make it so attractive and obvious to to um, work out a Darwin Harbour that it's not even a question in the planners' minds. That that to me is the kind of strategic vision that we need. Uh, and that would apply certainly to Darwin Harbour and also to development over at Stirling uh, into the Indian Ocean. But I, I wanted to shift a bit to what's the regional impact of developing Darwin Harbour that way. And I think it'd be very positive uh, for Southeast Asian partners if that was a, a far more primary uh, naval facility. But also to the idea of a precedent we're seeing in PNG, you know, government interest in being a partner with with a, a commercial firm taking an existing business over, Digicel. I wonder if that that was the kind of option you were thinking about with the buyout option around Landbridge. Look, I think so, and I think this issue is is. We have to think quite broadly around how we try to resolve the land bridge challenge, focus on getting that leverage point. And I think a partnership is one of those approaches. I'm reminded last week the Japanese ambassador um, at, his, at a speech at the press, National Press Club here in Canberra was mentioning his time in Darwin. And he said he was visiting and he goes, you know, for Asians and people from Asia who visit Darwin, they realise how much uh, Australia is part of the region, not a different region. And I think I'm paraphrasing him, but, you know, I think this is the other part of this and you've touched on in terms of using those examples and the region, but Darwin is no longer, uh, and the maritime approaches. Darwin is no longer the extent of our territory and the maritime approach is um, our mode of security. Rather, you know, it's our connection point to the region and I think that the future of Darwin Harbour in whatever partnership it takes is going to have a very much an Indonesian flavour, a Papua New Guinean flavour, a Japanese flavour, an Indian flavour and um, a lot of capability work can be done there. So, you know, in the past I've talked about the idea of a civil maritime security college bringing the region together, mm. those sorts of capabilities. Yeah, so John, fantastic report, but you know, I think that defining point about there needs to be a strategic plan to get maximum advantage from that piece of incredibly valuable um, geography, and that plan needs to be something that the federal government and the territory government are both signed up to, and it brings along commercial partners 
and our strategic partners. Absolutely, Mike. And the thing to remember here is we've got fierce agreement from all of those people that Northern Australia is strategically important. They've just got to turn the key and be brave to take that next journey. Mm, thanks, Joel. Thanks for listening to Policy, Guns and Money. This week, you heard conversations with Dr. Huang Le Tu, Senior Analyst at ASPE, and Richard Maud, Senior Fellow at the Asia Society Policy Institute. ASPE Research Intern Matthew Page spoke to Dr. Elizabeth Buchanan, Lecturer of Strategic Studies with Deakin University and Fellow of the Modern War Institute at West Point Military Academy. All views expressed in this interview are her own and not the views of her organisations. And Michael Shoebridge, Director of Defence, Strategy and National Security at ASPE, spoke to Dr. John Coyne, who is head of ASPE's Northern Australia Strategic Policy Centre. We'll be back with another episode soon.